This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. Let's cut to the chase here. Uh, In this episode, we connect with the retired Tad Elliott, who has swapped his native high altitude in sunshiny Colorado for an academic stint at Northern Michigan University. We'll get to all the details in a moment, but we wanted to reach out to Elliot and hear about his story, detailing how he recovered from Epstein-Barr virus and how he aims to help others from digging themselves into a deep fatigue hole themselves. You are in uh, northern Michigan. I am. So I want us to, let's take a step back. I think you're officially retired from elite level ski racing. And, you know, how old you are and, and what are you up to right now? My name's Tad Elliott. I'm 30 years old. Uh, last winter before I thir- turned 30, because I never wanted to have that master's tag next to me in a race, I, uh, I retired from cross-country ski racing and enrolled in uh, Northern Michigan University to start my academic career in hopes of getting a degree. And well, how did you end up, um, curious, over at Nor- in? northern michigan well it was one of those things i was just looking at what my best options were i didn't really know about the academics and like how to get into college i applied to my home school in fort lewis in durango applied to some schools out east and it was kind of hard to get into and i had just been accepted to uh plymouth state university where chris was because i figured chris where chris freeman is because i figured you know, well, if I get in somewhere, at least I can take classes. Instead, Chris Freeman was staying with Sten at the time for the Super Tour, and I was staying in northern Michigan in Marquette at the time with Kyle Bratrud. And Sten congratulated me because he had heard I got into a school somewhere. And I said, you know, thank you. And then he went, well, why the hell didn't you apply here? (laughs) (laughs) And I went, dude, hire me and maybe I will. And, you know, four hours later, I I had a meeting with Sten about if I was serious about me shooting my mouth off in a wax room, he could probably help me out. (laughs) And so, so what is, um, well, for people who don't know, can you explain who this guy is at Northern Michigan and not you, your sort of mentor up there? Yeah. uh, Sten Feldheim has been at Northern Michigan University since I think anybody can remember Sten might be the guy that like remembers when he actually raced for Northern Michigan university. He's, um, he has coached at this university for 30, 30 plus years as, as a coach of some capacity. He's now the head coach of the Nordic team and to have, I mean, he has been a presence in the Nordic ski world for as a racer and a U.S. citizen. He immigrated from Norway he was a presence as a racer back with Tim Caldwell, Bill Koch. And then he's been at Northern Michigan for as the head coach for these past 30 years. And what's made him unique is he's incredibly successful. Uh, he's been an incredibly successful coach here. They had a perfect, the women's team had a perfect score at NCAAs where they went one, two, and three when I was younger. And uh, so everybody knows who Sten is because of the success that he has brought to this program because of the skiers he has produced out of this program. Um, he's always been at the races. He's always brought his skiers to national championships, not just college races. Uh, he's been a supporter of the U S ski team. He was a U S ski team coach at one time. And 
we just, everybody knows the success. Everybody knows he's Norwegian and everybody's a little bit afraid of him because he's kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> and from my understanding, NMU has sort of had a history of also educate, you know, you always hear about good sports physiology stuff coming out of there. And I think that you're pursuing that type of field of study. What do you see in terms of how that's incorporated into what you do and what he does up at NMU? Yeah. Well, Sten received his master's in sports physiology from NMU. They have their own lab here with a roller ski treadmill. So Sten, one of the great things about Sten, you know, for coaching 30 years, the the sport, technique, equipment, how you train has progressed uh, along the way. And he's always adapted to those changes. And he's always been studying to see what comes next or how he can help his athletes. And we actually are, we have a close partnership with the NMU lab where this morning I ran interval. I ran, uh, they have a roller ski treadmill in the lab and I ran intervals for an athlete on the treadmill so that they could be controlled and that he could come back from an injury. Uh, it's, it's quite incredible the facility they have and what they're able to do. So that begs the question a little bit, like, are you an assistant coach or what, what's your, beyond being fre- like you're a freshman? Yeah. Oh yeah. 30 did, year old did, freshman, buddy. It's did weird. You, did you pledge like Delta Chi or anything like that? <laughs> Absolutely not. I, like, man, you know, I haven't been in a classroom and the iPhone, they didn't have smartphones when I graduated high school. You know how hard I have to study? Like, man. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> So like, what is your official role with the team and, you know, how do you kind of manage that with uh, obviously rewiring your brain to actually like study academics again? Yeah. My official role with the team is I'm a student assistant uh, with the team and I've been joking that I'm the assistant to the assistant, but, <laughs> and Sten's the head coach, Andy Keller, who used to be the head coach of CXC. Um, came, came to NMU last year as the assistant coach. He's the assistant coach this year. So I kind of, they, they set the training and I, right now I'm just learning from those two guys about collegiate skiing, how they set up training for their athletes. I'm learning from the athletes as well. You know, really talented guys like Ian Torchia and Zach Ketterson, um, lear- learning a bunch from those guys. So right now I'm the assistant and just doing whatever I can to help them. And then, yeah, the flip side is I'm taking 16 class credits in college, and it's uh, I think working a full time job every summer it really helped me in the mindset of it's a job, studying's a job. You need a you need to get it done, and also being 30 years old, I'm not I'm a little more mature and older, and I don't I don't have a huge social life, and I'm kind of okay with that. Like <laughs> I have, yeah. As yeah. you get older, maybe you know you have less friends, but they're closer and I got more time to study. (laughs) I am curious, you know, you, um, having grown up in Durango, I I know your dad was a very successful skier. You work with Zach Caldwell for a long time. And Zach seems to be, I mean, saying he's a student of the sport is probably an understatement. Absolutely. So, you know, what, drove you to pursue kind of sports physiology in college. Um, I can see some people being so surrounded by that as an athlete that 
It's like, I'm going to study like, you know, Asian art renaissance. <laughs> um, I think right now the biggest thing we've learned is I feel like Zach is cutting edge. Uh, Caldwell. He, the dude is like a, a genius and kind of a low-key genius in that we mostly know Zach for being incredible at ski picking and the grinds he's producing. We all know he's a genius there. What he's really on the cutting edge of is together we formed a partnership of – it was mainly when I was coming back from my sickness and Epstein-Barr virus, and we formed a partnership where we talked about everything – and we were using first speed systems to judge kind of the training response versus the mental response. And I'm now seeing, you know, other skiers in the super tour adapt to things that Zach was talk, talking about with me like three years ago. And what interested me the most in sports physiology, and it might be a different subset, is what affected me the most in my training as a negative and I'm putting words in Chris, what I've, what I personally felt affected Chris Freeman the most in his diabetes was the kind of the mental side of the sport and everything surrounding it. the training, the training in the super compensation graphs and how you train and rest and recover. We all kind of know how, how that should go to be fast. What's interesting is the outside life stresses and how much those can negatively impact your days of training. So how do you, Zach and I always call it artistry more than science. Like how do you add the science and the art of judging how that training's gonna, how you're gonna adapt to the training with like your day-to-day -day life. And I think it's uh, understudied and under, and not very well understood right now. A lot of people think you can just, you can plow through that because you're a tough athlete. And essentially you can, but I think with less reward on the other end. But can you frame a little bit for people about like what went on for you in terms of being at the top of the world and then all of a sudden like something was going on in your body you couldn't quite figure out to approaching Zach and starting to have the conversations you kind of just spoke of? Yeah. And uh, so before the Olympics in 2014 um, – the year before I was dismissed from the ski team and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I, I was, I was pretty bummed about that. And I, I harbored some resentment um, from those guys with how it was handled more than, more than the results side. But one of the things as an athlete to get to the Olympics and with a little bit of, you know, a ton of motivation, how do you get faster? And that is, that's work harder. That's what I knew to do. And I mean, I, I trained so hard and, I trained myself into the ground. Maybe it's the overtraining that lets uh, the mono develop or Epstein bar. Maybe it's you're so weak and you get the virus. It, it essentially doesn't matter. I got the virus. It wasn't handled. Um, doctors, doctors didn't, didn't uh, catch it. I kept racing and it just, it drove it home. Um, I had to take in January. I knew I was pretty much done and had to take essentially eight months off of training and who helped me find it was a homeopathic doctor who ran the blood test. And Is that January 2013 or 2014? Two, two, January of 2014, um, I learned, like, man, I'm, I'm smoked here. Uh, you know, I, I got to take basically until September off of training, uh, which I did. And 
So I didn't really know what I was doing in the world, man. That's my whole life was athletics. And it's basically, I remember going to the store with my mother and getting tired walking around the aisles for 40 minutes. And I'd have to go to the car and recline the seat and wait for her to come out. I was, I was a hurting unit. And Zach, what was interesting is Zach called me. I was working some odd jobs, um, worked for Solomon a bit, worked at MBS. And Zach called me and said, Hey, come out to, uh, come out to Putney and hang out. I was like, so what the hell am I going to do in Putney, dude? I can't even walk up the stairs. And he's like, well, you don't have shit better else going on. <laughs> and so I, I flew out to just to hang out with a buddy who I'd like grown close to at races. And that was what uh, essentially set the stage there. Meeting Zach was, he said he believed I could come back to a high level of racing. And if I really wanted to, but it was going to take some patience and, it was going to take some work from him, and uh, he had this new technology called First Beat that he was working with, uh, new to him, and he said he thought that we could manage it well. And that's when I started. That's when I decided I'd give it another four-year run and come back to racing. You know, my question is like having been through that, and I know it's not necessarily uncommon for Epstein Barr to be diagnosed like six months later after. People are like, oh my God, I'm wasted. What, from your experience, like, why do you think it takes so long for it to be pinpointed? I, I don't know how long exactly you were feeling those symptoms, but it sounds like it took quite some time and the traditional MD couldn't nail it. Right. I think it took, in my case, about five months. And what is interesting is, as an athlete, what I've experienced going to an MD is you're explaining things that are easily, easily like dismissible. It, it could be a cold, it could be strep, it could be, you know, a, a lot of things. And it's, it's really hard to pinpoint like that it's going to be mono or Epstein-Barr. Those are pretty rare. Um, you, you hear about the stories more than they actually pop up. And, but the biggest thing was the overtraining and the cortisol level that kind of let the virus in. And it's not something you, you necessarily check because you just don't think people are going to hurt themselves that much. Like it, it was partly my fault for sure. And it's just, you know, it's just a cold or you're just tired. All the, all the surface symptoms are easily diagnosed and treated without it without having to dig too far. So you kind of just, it just gets delayed. They're like, oh, take a week off. Oh, you still have a cold. It can take 10 days. Oh, it's a slight infection. It's not a big deal. Like, oh, now, you know, one of the things where they were just like, well, you've rested so much. You're just out of shape now. And that's why you're hurting. Um, And then I also heard maybe I needed to see like a uh, a psychiatrist because I maybe I just wasn't as good as I thought I was. And uh, <laughs> I understand I'm a pretty cocky dude, man, but I was feeling terrible. Well, did, did you, did you end up going to see a psychiatrist or a sports psych or anything like that? I did not. That's uh, after I heard that I was pretty bummed. And I, I asked for the, I asked for all the blood test results. They handed it to me and um, the doctor I was working with. And I went to see a homeopathic doctor who had mentioned, you know, let me, let me just take a look. And Durango, his name's Dr. Sigersleek. And his son was a Harvard skier, Hawking. And he took a look at my test, ordered some new ones, got the cortisol level back. And 
he laughed at me and said, buddy, minimum of four months, nothing. That's what you get to look forward to. So he, he really set the stage of, dude, you're hurt. You're sick. You got to come back. And I, I understand what you're going through. He, he went through it himself, actually. So he, he really helped me. Gosh, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, you're, I mean, for people who don't know, you were, I, I think, a U23 world. I mean, you were like a top mountain bike racer. Yeah, don't be shy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what, yeah. What's your <laughs> highlight for cycling? Just to kind of. Uh, I was on the na- I was on the national team for four years and I won uh, two U23 national championships. I and I actually, I placed sixth the next year in the elite mountain bike national championships before I went to focus okay. on skiing. I, I'm, I'm pretty proud of those results, to be honest. <laughs> so four months and, and I know rest is rest, but for you, what, like truly, what did that look like after that diagnosis? Uh, literally walking around the, the store with my mom was my exercise. It was, I was in, I was in bed a lot and I'll go for walks and I would work a little bit and it was, it's a roller coaster of some days you feel okay. Some days it's really hard to get up the stairs. One of the biggest, one of the biggest things that helped me mentally that I don't think I could have made it through without was, uh, her name, her name is Kristen McGrath. She was a pro level, uh, cyclist, road cyclist who was, who was Olympic caliber. She never quite made it to the Olympics, but she was, she was really talented. She actually got Epstein-Barr virus maybe a month before, a month after, around the same time I did. And her dad was my pediatrician and she is a Haas athlete and tougher than anybody you'll meet. Her toughness can't be questioned. And she was experiencing, I heard through the grapevine of Durango, she was experiencing similar symptoms. So I, I, I called her and said, Hey, we got to meet. And we had basically all of the same symptoms, all of the same unrest, all of the same, it's hard to sleep, but I'm so tired, I can't work out. And so we became, I mean, we became really close and any activity we would try to do together because you could really sympathize with how slow we were going on the bike path, walking, buddy. <laughs> and so that was, that was a huge help for me. How can you help other athletes from, I guess the two pieces of the question is, and I don't know if you want to write this down, it's a long question here, but like from ever getting into that hole in the first place, and if an athlete does get into that hole, how do you help them get out of it? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest thing is like, how do you get in that hole? And that's from just too much on your plate, like too much life stress, too much training, not recovering enough, not quite like too, too much racing. Um, I think one of the bigger ways you get in that hole as well is just, it's just life stress or caring too much, caring too much about results. All of that kind of just adds up to, uh, elevated stress levels and you get in that hole right now with, um, Right now, I don't see a lot of, there's a lot of people being cautious, but it's really hard to track if you're not already on first beat. So I think my role with Nordic Team Solutions, my role is basically what Zach did for me, what Kristen McGrath did for me, what Chris Freeman did for me. is just somebody that can understand like what you are going through and how to get better. I think that's going to be the first step of kind of my consulting is, 
it's still pretty rare. It's still kind of, you go through some interesting kind of biological changes in your body where you just react different to training to some foods. You have some really weird autoimmune issues that go on, which leads to some doctor's visits that kind of, there was a lot of correlation between them, between like Kristen and I, which wasn't the most fun. And I think right now that's going to be my main, where I can see myself being the most beneficial is athletes that get themselves in that hole. Coaches don't quite understand what's going on. Other athletes don't quite understand what's going on. And I honestly hope they call me because I can, I really want to help them and say like, it will get better. There's a path back, but it's going to take some patience. And the, the easiest thing is when you have a good day or you have a good week, you just reach for too much and find yourself back in that hole. You know, when did you feel like, wow, that's a performance, you know, like the first or a performance in general where you're like, that's indicative of who I am, not the like, oh my gosh, like walking around the supermarket with your mom is, you know, a level five exercise. Yeah. It was actually when I knew I could come back to compete in world champs. It was um, two years before I was really coming back from all the sickness. I was having the up and down swings. I just placed 30th in the super tours. This was in uh, 2015 or Jude, this whole December to January, I think it was 2016. It was 2016 when Nationals were in Houghton, Michigan. Um, I There was a 30K mass start skate, and my brother was there with Vail and my twin brother. Evan, he waxed my skis for me, and my skis were lights out. They were the best in the field, and I found myself in a position to win the race with, you know, 2K to go. And I just, I said – man, I have nothing to lose. Like everybody expects me to get 10th. Like I'm going to risk it and go for the win. And I held on in one. And that's when that was the real where I went, wow, if you manage things well, you get great support. I can come back to the racer I've been. I, I think this was kind of a flash in the pan and I got extremely lucky with circumstance, but uh, I made the most of it. I can come back. And then it, then it was an upward trend until uh, world champs in Lati in 2017. And so like the word that resonates with me is manage. And I hear that a lot, but in particular for, from athletes who, you know, are recovering or are feeling sick, it's like, yeah, you have to manage the physiological machine. And you've mentioned first beat and I don't want this necessarily to be like a big plug for first beat, but that seems to be a really, at least for you, a really good tool for assessing uh, how depleted you might be or conversely, like how topped off you might be with fuel, so to speak. So what is that technology? What does that mean? What does it do? Yeah. The first beat is a computer program that measures your heart rate variability, which is how fast your heart rate rises and falls. And you, and you just notice trends. The main point that I love about first beat that I – that one is it's a data. It's like a nerd science plot. Like we get into it. But what's interesting is it's your body telling you how recovered you are. It's your number doesn't really correlate with anyone. It doesn't matter what anybody else got. It is your body telling you how recovered you are. 
and you we would wear the heart rate monitor overnight when we slept and that's when kind of your your nervous system takes over and you can see just how stressed you really are now first beat is just a number you get and you have to interpret it the real the real benefit that came from that was talking to Zach Caldwell about okay tad you just you know had really hard intervals, your body's absorbing the training nicely, we can continue to train hard. Or, hey, Tad, Gunner made fun of you yesterday. It really hurt your feelings. You had a terrible night of sleep because you're really stressed out about it. We can't do intervals today. So that was kind of what we noticed with using the technology. <laughs> In terms of that technology, from your experience, and again, it's a data, it's, it, it's data, and it's something you can reference, but, you know, did you find that there's like this religious fidelity to the data or it's still like, well, the data says this, but I'm feeling this way. Or was there like a real strict correlation between what the data showed you and how you felt? What's interesting is some days I felt terrible and I did not want to train and I did not want to go out and I was kind of grouchy about it. But the data showed I felt 100% I could absorb training like I needed to go out. And then there was other days where I felt like I was on top of the world. I could go. I was running on all cylinders and I was, it, was, it was obvious I hadn't recovered. And it's, it's very interesting how much as an athlete you can like – I mean you can convince yourself if you're just a tough – if most, most athletes are tough. Most people are tough. Like you can convince yourself what you're doing is best. What's interesting is those numbers just kind of showed you where you were based on like what you were dealing with in your life. Um, when, when Zach broke his leg and you know, I was, I was worried about him. I mean that like that affected me, uh, on more than just like a training level. We had to kind of back off training and had to make sure that like Amy, Zach and Gunner were like taken care of. And so that affected you like emotionally, which, and then affected training. Like it wouldn't be worth doing the prescribed training of four hours that day because you would just make yourself kind of a mess. Uh, that's where I, that's where first beat really helped me in that we would interpret what my body said more than any other athlete that used first beat actually, or that worked with Zach because of my health status. Um, we just, we just believe what the numbers said and base my training off that. Okay. So like a guy like Noah Hoffman might, I think he was doing first beat at some point in his training might not necessarily dictate exactly what he was doing on any given day because of what the data stated. Correct. Noah. No, I love the Hoff bear. Let's get that first, but no, yeah, we're huge to... fans of him. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Like, He's incredible. No, but, yeah. Yep. But if he had like four hours and he had the route planned in his head and he was ready to go and he saw like he was maybe it wasn't the best idea, he was going to do the route and then see what the data said. Whereas me, I wasn't married to anything necessarily because I just I didn't care because I was back from walking around the grocery store. I would go for an hour bike ride with, you know, the Caldwell boys and Amy and I'd be fine with it. It it didn't affect me to do that. Whereas it would be more of an effect on Noah to do that, which in then turn would like hurt his training. So 
you have to interpret what the numbers say for the individual. That's where the artistry comes in. Anything that you would want to bring up or talk about before I get to my El Camino question? <laughs> um, I think like one thing I really want to get across, I like that was just nice is, um, I haven't told this story a, a whole heck of a lot, but man, when I got that sick and I didn't make the Olympics in 2014 when I, when I really hoped to, and I wasn't racing, uh, there's a lot of coaches out there who say they're a coach or there are a lot of coaches that coach me and a lot of teammates I had. And I actually, I didn't hear from them when I got sick and it was, it was pretty hard on me mentally. But the two people who, who called me, who picked up the phone, old school, dialed my number, were uh, Chris Freeman. He, he called me and just said, how are you doing? How are things? Uh, man, for an athlete that talented to just take the time out of his day to do that, like that meant a lot to me. That was huge. And then the other guy that did it was Zach Caldwell. He, he called me too and, uh, and just see, saw how I was doing and if I would come back and how things were. Um, the Vail coaches, they were instrumental. They were always calling me to see how I was doing as my personal coaches. But to have those two dudes from outside my immediate circle call me um, was pretty special. And we're like, I'll be friends with those guys forever now. Okay. So do you still drive? Do you have the El Camino up in Northern Michigan right now? I do not. It is chilling in um, a palace of a garage out east. <laughs> okay. So, um, all right, for folks who don't know, I, you own an El Camino. How would you, I mean, I, and I'll ask you for a photo of it, but like, <laughs> how old is it and how would you describe the model? Uh, <laughs> it's a 1979 El Camino. It's got a, like a 350V8 crate motor in it. It was repainted um, just recently. That's, it's a two-tone white and black and it is a car truck. <laughs> Okay, that said, how how'd that car work out for you? You did not bring it up to Northern Michigan, so I did not. Is it sort of a? Is it kind of like a collector's item piece for you? It is. I was trying to sell it to pay tuition, and no one really bit. And I still own it, so I think I'm gonna continue to own it forever now because I. I well, hold on. <laughs> what, th look at this as a huge opportunity, right? Like the. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's one of those you things can, like when you want to, like, if somebody were to offer to buy it, like part of my soul would get crushed, man. I think I kind of came to terms with, I'm going to keep that thing. <laughs> okay. All right. Because there might be like a listener out there who's sort of jonesing for a Cam El Camino, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's true. That's fair. I, I had some adventures in that car. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> okay. Um all right. So if people do have questions for you as it relates to, you know, Epstein-Barr or recovering from autoimmune disease or just, you know, how to manage that fine line between getting stronger and not wasting yourself, how might, how would you like people to contact you? Uh, you can contact me through my email, which is Tad Elliott, which is T-A-D-E-L-L-I-O-T-T. -L the number two at gmail.com or you can go through Nordic team solutions with uh, Andy Newell and get my contact through those guys as well. Okay. Will folks see you out at ski races at all this year? Absolutely. I'll be at uh, us nationals for sure. Um, I'll be as a, 
as a coach. As a coach, I'll be, that's going to be a weird, man, I'm going to be honest. I've already watched these guys race once and I, I get quite a bit more nervous for watching people I care about race than when I race, man, I'm like a hot mess inside. Huh? Interesting. And then will you go to some NCAA races as well? Yes, for sure. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And, um, I'm glad that you sort of landed, uh, you know, more than on your own two feet, you know, up at, in Northern Michigan pursuing all that stuff. Oh yeah. That's a huge thanks to, that's a huge thanks to STEM, man. Like sometimes my big mouth ends up like coming, ends up being a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. It's a cool, I, I, yeah, it's a cool opportunity and probably an awesome place to be for four years of your life. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been great. I really look forward to it, but God, dude, the weather, buddy, you're telling me about Ben, like I'm, dude, I've, they have happy lights in the library and I've been session that thing. I miss the sun. All right. Thanks, Tad. I really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck. Thanks, man. We'll talk to you. Thanks for listening. 